This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 147th edition of the program. Today is June 14th, and this episode of the show is sponsored by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors who signed up just this last week to support the program. And that includes Bruce Griswold, Franklin Rodriguez, Keith E. Holtz, Laurent Young, Majed, Nick Andres, Nico Gillespie, Thad Estrada, and Wesley Kamenga. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd all also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support. So on today's episode of the program, Bernie Sanders tells us how he feels about Tom Perez's decision to endorse Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. He also responds to Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, who claims we can't afford things like Medicare for all. The DNC adopted a new rule targeting Bernie Sanders in 2020. I'll tell you what that's all about. And additionally, members of the DNC and Democratic Party are currently losing their minds at the thought of the party reforming their highly undemocratic superdelegate system. And additionally, net neutrality is now officially repealed. I'll tell you what that means, and we'll also talk about Ajit Pai's laughable assertion that he actually supports a free and open internet. And we'll also talk about another scandal involving the FCC, specifically their lie about a DDoS attack that occurred in 2017. Also, Joe Manchin says that he's open to endorsing Donald Trump in 2020, and his boss, Chuck Schumer, doesn't really seem to mind. So we'll talk about Chuck Schumer's feckless leadership, and we'll also talk about the outcome of the congressional race featuring Amy Valela in the 4th District of Nevada. And finally, President Donald Trump struck a deal with Kim Jong-un, and I'll tell you why that's actually a good thing, and we'll also provide you with a compilation of clips from Fox News that shows exactly how much of a joke they really are. But first, we'll kick off the show by talking about how the 2020 Democratic presidential primary is already well underway. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the program. So even though nobody who's planning to run in 2020 has announced their candidacy yet, I think it's safe to say that the 2020 Democratic Party primary has already kicked off for all intents and purposes because everybody is making moves currently to position themselves in a place to run next year. Now, one thing that really struck me about news regarding 2020 that came out this week is that Democratic Party strategists, top strategists, mind you, as out of touch as they usually are, at least seem to see the writing on the wall with regard to Bernie Sanders, and they believe that he'll ultimately emerge as the Democratic Party's nominee and will face off against Donald Trump in 2020. Now, if Democratic Party strategists are saying this, you know that members of the establishment are absolutely terrified, they're scrambling, and look, they know that members of the progressive movement 
we're not getting off the Bernie bus anytime soon. And if you don't get on board, then you might get hit by it. But nonetheless, establishment Democrats are currently scrambling to compete with Bernie Sanders, at least when it comes to money. And they're now competing in what's known as the New York Money Primary. And individuals like Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Joe Biden are calling big money donors in Manhattan to talk about policy ideas, which really is code for, I'm running, give me money. Now, I'm a little bit disappointed, or frankly a lot disappointed, that Elizabeth Warren is also allegedly competing in the New York money primary. I don't know if she's even going to run at all. It seems like she's going to, but... If she's going to run, she's got to do it like Bernie Sanders because if she takes corporate money, that will be that will be awful, right? It'll be a betrayal even further of the trust that she once had. So, um they're certainly doing what they can ahead of the 2020 primary to raise money with big money donors and they're basically just calling up a lot of powerful people in Manhattan and they're trying to talk to them and cultivate this friendship and relationship so that way when they do officially announce their bid they'll get money from them now additionally other members of the establishment are scrambling to fend off a bernie challenge and when i say other members of the establishment i'm talking about the democratic party's biggest donors the puppeteers and they're currently trying to push Mark Warner into the race as a moderate alternative to progressives like Bernie Sanders and even Elizabeth Warren. So these Democratic Party donors hear what top strategists in the Democratic Party are saying about how Bernie Sanders is basically unstoppable at this point and they're getting really worried and they're trying to do whatever they can to make sure they put up someone who could beat Bernie Sanders. Now, last year in the Hamptons, donors were all abuzz about Kamala Harris, and I'm sure a lot of them still are. But now, a lot of donors are starting to line up behind someone like Mark Warner, who has vocalized his <laughs> desire to not run. Uh, he he stated pretty um, pretty unequivocally that he doesn't want to run, but they're trying to push him into the race to get him to run, basically just to defeat Bernie Sanders. So it's really funny to see individuals in the establishment scramble now and behind the scenes some future candidates are now having meetings with president obama and presumably he is giving them advice on how to launch a successful campaign since he did in fact run two successful presidential campaigns and he actually quietly met with nine possible 2020 contenders including joe biden deval patrick elizabeth warren and yes also bernie sanders now I'm assuming that they sought advice from Obama, but they didn't just talk about 2020 because Bernie Sanders actually reportedly spoke to him about the future of the party and the divide in the party, you know, between um, practicality and idealism. And Warren was actually invited to speak with him after she called him out for taking $400,000 from Wall Street for just one speech. So, I mean, when you see all of these news articles, really story after story coming out, about everyone who is preparing and positioning themselves to run in 2020, I think for progressives, we need to read that as it already kicked off. So the minute Bernie Sanders announces his campaign, if he runs, which I mean, he's probably going to run. <laughs> but the minute he announces, I will be donating to his campaign. I want him to hit the ground running. So I'm going to give him money 
Whatever you can give him, a dollar or two dollars, anything, even if you can't donate, if you can offer him grassroots support in the form of phone banking or canvassing, that could also prove to be invaluable. So look, progressives, we need to learn from 2016 and we need to work even harder than we did last time because we already know that the party establishment will be trying to work against us. I wouldn't be surprised if the DNC did even more shenanigans knowing that they need to stop Bernie Sanders if they want to keep the gravy train rolling with their corporate donors. So look, we've got to be prepared. And for the most part, we need to basically pretend as if the 2020 primary already kicked off, but we can't forget about 2018 and make sure that we still... Uh, get progressives elected where we can and defeat Republicans. So look, this is all interesting, and um, I'm I'm getting excited. I'm getting hopeful at the prospect of potentially getting a true progressive in 2020 after we were robbed brazenly so in 2016. The DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee recently adopted a new rule that shamelessly targets Bernie Sanders ahead of the 2020 Democratic Party primaries, and it shows the level of contempt the DNC truly has for progressives. So according to Morgan Stalter of The Hill, the Democratic National Committee adopted a new rule on Friday aimed at keeping outsider candidates like Senator Bernie Sanders from trying to clinch the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020. The new rule adopted by the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee requires all Democratic presidential candidates to be a member of the Democratic Party, Yahoo News reported. A presidential candidate running for the Democratic nomination must be a member of the party except the Democratic nomination and run and serve as a member. So obviously this is very clearly targeted at Bernie Sanders and at this point we admittedly don't necessarily know the impact that this will have on Bernie Sanders um, because the rule itself is relatively vague but here's what I'm worried about. Later on the Rules and Bylaws Committee could attach some sort of stipulation to this rule and say well you know you have to be a member of the Democratic Party for a certain amount of years let's say four for example and you know if something like that were to happen obviously Bernie Sanders just wouldn't qualify at all in 2020 he'd be shut out like that. So I don't trust the DNC one bit and the fact that they're doing this might just be a step towards trying to ice out Bernie ahead of the 2020 primaries. And look, we always have to operate on the premise that the DNC is always trying to screw over Bernie Sanders. Anything they do that seems targeted at Bernie Sanders probably is to fuck him over. And it's because look what happened in 2016. We have absolutely no reason to trust them ever again. So we can't just operate with this good faith assumption that, oh, well, this might not impact Bernie Sanders when they've tried to sabotage him before. The same people who tried to shut him out in 2016 are still serving in the DNC in 2020. Now, the good news is that at this point in time, as the rule stands, it doesn't actually seem as though it currently would affect Bernie Sanders. And as Hunter Walker of Yahoo News explains, with Sanders' independent status and push for inclusivity, the new rule change would seem to be a slap in the face and a potential roadblock should the Vermont senator decide to mount another presidential run in 2020. However, Sanders' allies do not believe he would be affected by the measure thanks to a unique rule in his home state. Sanders, who is currently running for re-election, typically runs in the state's Democratic primary but declines the party's nomination 
nomination after winning. The move allows him to fend off Democratic challengers in the state while still running as an independent. Last month, the Vermont Democratic Party passed the resolution supporting this strategy and proclaiming that Sanders would still be considered a member of the party for all purposes and entitled to all the rights and privileges that come with such membership at the state and federal level. That membership could inoculate him against the DNC's rules change. One source familiar with the discussions told Yahoo News the rules change was not aimed at Sanders and wouldn't necessarily affect him. In fact, the source described it as a step that was designed to make it easier for party leaders to accept one of Sanders' main priorities, the end of superdelegates. Now, whoever that unnamed source was who said uh, they didn't think this was aimed at Bernie Sanders, I would like for you to get a hold of me because I do have some magical snake oil to sell you. Because, I, I mean, obviously, this was targeted directly at Bernie Sanders. Now, the good news is that for now, at least, it doesn't seem as though this will affect Bernie. For now. That's the key word. But it still gives progressives who are independent the middle finger by declaring you can't run in our party if you're not a Democrat. I mean, at a time when Donald Trump is the president, they should be opening their doors to as much people as possible so they can defeat Donald Trump and the Republican Party. But by doing this, it's a slap in the face to progressives. Now, as the article suggested, this may in fact be a compromise. So, you know, it may be something Bernie Sanders agreed to if they agreed to end superdelegates. But again, we just don't know because this rule is pretty vague at this point. In fact, Randy Weingarten, who's a DNC member, tweeted out the exact wording, and it doesn't really say how sweeping this will be. It also doesn't say if this will apply to Bernie or how something like this will be enforced in the event a candidate doesn't abide by it. Now, a member of the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee named Elaine Kamark, who supported this, did have one theory as to how this can be enforced in the event a candidate doesn't abide by it. Now, to remind you, she just wrote an article for the New York Times where she actually argued that Democrats should essentially be able to rig primaries against progressives and get away with it. So this is what she had to say about how something like this could be enforced. Now, keep in mind, this was a discussion that likely took place when they were still deliberating on this rule. Uh, how is that enforced? How is that what? Enforced, so... Well, okay, so ultimately the enforcement is, and we talked about this at the last meeting, um, the chairman can say that nobody, no delegates elected pursuant to this person um, who's not a Democrat will be seated at the convention. And that's what um, Chairman Powell did for Lyndon LaRouche delegates in 1996. And then, as we remember, that case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court affirmed the authority of the chairman of the party to make that determination. So the ultimate determination is all, in other words, the party chairman already has the power to say not to a state you can't put your name on the ballot because that's state, but they can say, okay, uh, Mr. LaRouche, you've filed in the New Hampshire primary. Um, we are not going to see any delegates that you win out of that primary. So they already have that power, and I think if we say clearly here that they have to affirm that they're a part of the meet these other qualifications. Um, this gives a chairman a little bit more um, ground to stand on if they should have to do something like that. The national chairman? The national chairman. 
Now, I know that what she was saying was pretty difficult to make out because there was an echo in that room, but I isolated the most important quotes. The chairman can say that nobody, no delegates elected pursuant to this person who's not a Democrat, will be seated at the convention. In other words, the party chairman already has the power to say, not that we can't put your name on the ballot, but they can say, Mr. Roosh, you filed in the New Hampshire state primary. We are not going to seat any delegates that you win in that primary. So they already have that power. And I think if we say clearly here that they have to affirm that they're part of the Democratic Party and meet these other qualifications, this gives the chairman a little bit more ground to stand on if they do have to do something. So what she's essentially saying here is that Tom Perez, as DNC chairman, will be able to unilaterally choose to not seat any of Bernie Sanders' delegates should he win in 2020. And if you don't seat the delegates and they're not there to cast their vote for someone like Bernie Sanders, what happens? Well, then all the other delegates for other candidates will probably vote for the runner-up. Meaning, Tom Perez basically has the authority to her reading of what he can do in enforcing this to just overthrow the will of the people like that. And also, she alluded to other potential fuckery by saying, if you're not part of the Democratic Party and you don't meet these other qualifications, that's really important, we don't have to seat your delegates at the next convention. Now, we don't know specifically what types of qualifications that she's referring to, but I can guess that they'd be arbitrary and most likely be qualifications that Bernie Sanders conveniently wouldn't meet. So, this is all very shady. Currently, yes, it's the case that for now, it doesn't seem like this will directly hurt Bernie Sanders, but this whole situation stinks, and we'd be naive to not be skeptical and not see the just glaring red flags that are up here. And to be clear here, what she's advocating for doesn't seem to be adopted, at least when we look at what Randy Weingarten posted and when we look at the verbiage of this rule, but the video still gives you some crucial insight into their thinking. Someone on the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee was just openly arguing that the DNC chairman can choose to not seat delegates at the convention and give the nomination to someone else of his choosing. And I don't know if you noticed, but Donna Brazil was there too. Didn't she just act all outraged when she found out that uh, there was a cancer in the Democratic Party and that there was this joint fundraising agreement between Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Hillary Clinton that allowed Clinton's team to take full control of the DNC? Didn't she just act all outraged when democracy was undermined? She didn't say anything when this DNC member was openly advocating that the DNC chairman should be able to undermine the will of voters. So for now, we'll just kind of file this under on our radars, but um, not a huge pressing issue. But we do have to watch what they're doing and be cautious because if they rig the primary in 2020 or 2016, they're going to be more than willing to do it again and... They may even pull out more stops this time because Bernie Sanders is that much more of a formidable opponent for them. So we'll see what happens, but we've got to watch them and we've got to be skeptical of anything they say because we can't trust them. So as you all know, the DNC will soon decide whether or not it will limit the power superdelegates have in presidential primaries. 
and we're starting to hear a lot of complaints from members of the DNC and within the Democratic Party who just don't want to let go of this archaic, undemocratic system. In fact, according to Politico, a discussion about how the superdelegate system will be reformed ended up leading to an angry confrontation between the DNC chair, Tom Perez, and some House Democrats. So, for example... Virginian House Democrat Jerry Connolly argued, I believe this decision, if they go forward, is going to do terrible damage to party harmony. It disenfranchises the elected leadership of the party. The last time we allowed that to happen was 1972, and we had the worst landslide in our history. So I don't know how someone can say that and not realize how absurd it sounds, but he's basically arguing that by him not being allowed to disenfranchise voters, well, that's actually disenfranchising him <laughs> makes sense of course you not being able to undermine the will of voters doesn't disenfranchise you you have the same amount of power as we all have you have one vote one person one vote are you against that because if you are then you're admitting that you're against democracy and this guy just inadvertently admitted that so he referred to 1972 which was a race between mcgovern and nixon now Nixon ended up landsliding McGovern, and a lot of Democrats point to that example, saying, well, look, if we nominate someone too liberal like McGovern, well, a landslide might happen, so we can step in and save voters from themselves and undermine what they want in the event they nominate someone who would obviously be a disaster, but the problem is that you don't get to undermine voters. If they make a decision that will clearly lead to them losing or the party losing, then the voters spoke. You don't get to do anything about that. You don't get to change the outcome of an election because you don't like the choice voters made. If the candidate who voters choose loses, then that's democracy. Try again next time. But you don't get to overthrow what they want. But this guy, George Connolly, wasn't the only individual who made idiotic comments with regard to superdelegates because New Jersey Representative Bill Pascrell also argues, quote, I think this is absolutely an insult to us. We're no better than anybody else, but we stand for election. That has to mean something. That has to stand for something. That's a lot of baloney. Now, I honestly don't know what he's talking about. We stand for election. That has to mean something. It literally means nothing. I don't know what that stands for. You stand for election? You stand for rigged elections? Because I stand for free and fair elections. I stand for elections that are honored. When voters make their choice, you honor that. So if you're saying that you stand for elections but you don't support voters, then you don't stand for election as he puts it. Now, David Price of North Carolina, who was actually part of the commission that created superdelegates, says that lawmakers were, quote, infuriated by Perez's seemingly pro-reform stance. I think they were essentially targeting Tom Perez, thinking that he was in favor of reform, but Tom Perez hasn't really done anything to indicate that he is, in fact, in favor of reform. If anything, he was signaling to them that reform is inevitable. And look, we should be eliminating superdelegates altogether, but that's not even on the table. What they're voting on is whether or not they will reduce the influence of superdelegates. If you can't even do that, then you just have to admit that you don't care about democracy. A party named the Democratic Party, who literally has democracy in its name, should honor the will of voters. This shouldn't even be controversial. But the fact that they're coming out and publicly saying 
that they don't support the will of the people, and they're throwing a tantrum over the prospect of them losing their ability to undermine what voters want, that's really telling. It shows you how out of touch this party has become. But if you think that what they said was idiotic, it's not. Because there's a DNC member named Bob Mulholland, or Mulholland, um, and <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I don't even know how to approach this. He, he referred to this move to um, limit superdelegates as a Russian plot. I'm not making that up. He, he didn't say this, you know, um, ironically. It was completely unironic. He said this earnestly. He legitimately thinks the push to end superdelegates or reform superdelegates is literally part of a plot orchestrated by Vladimir Putin. Not even kidding. I wish I was, but I'm not. So according to Daniel Morans of HuffPost, momentum is growing within the Democratic National Committee for a significant reform to the party's presidential nominating process. But the proposed change has caused a leading California Democrat to question whether Russian meddling is behind the effort. The Californian, Bob Mulholland, could provide no proof for his claim, but his comments underscore the resistance the reform push is expected to encounter from some party stalwarts. Mulholland, a DNC member and longtime key player in California Democratic politics, sent an email on Friday to other DNC members from the Golden State that implied Russian President Vladimir Putin... <laughs> might be behind the reform effort. The basis for his claim? An activist from West Virginia promoting the changes who he had seen at two national party gatherings admitted to him that she was a Green Party member and had voted for its nominee, Jill Stein, in the 2016 election. I concluded someone is picking up her expenses, but there she and others are demanding we change our rules, Mulholland wrote. The Putin operation is still active. Contacted by HuffPost on Sunday, Mulholland conceded he had no evidence the woman, who he did not name, was bankrolled by Putin. But he said that when people show up who have no connection to the party, and they show up at events requiring transportation of hundreds of miles, I always think they're working for somebody. He added, I'm a big believer that Putin has not let off the gas. Anyone who thinks Putin would not be interfering with future elections need to have their head examined. Oh, somebody definitely needs to have their head examined. But it's you, Bob. So, because this individual said she voted for Jill Stein, she's a Russian puppet. I mean, to say that that's a jump <laughs> would be the understatement of the century. Because someone cares about the future of the Democratic Party and maybe, just maybe, wants to reform it so she can join the party in the future, make it more liberal in the future... To say that that individual is part of some Russian plot is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life, hands down. Now, understand the logic of what he's saying. He's saying that Vladimir Putin, the leader of an authoritarian country, who clearly believes in the consolidation of power, is trying to push the DNC to further democratize. Well, isn't he against democracy because he's a dictator? I mean, it makes no fucking sense whatsoever, but believe it or not, that might not be the worst thing he had to say, because he actually sent an email to Tom Perez and Keith Ellison, um, <laughs> and the assertion that he um, stated in this email 
might be even dumber. So, earlier Friday, Malalin sent a separate email to Perez and Ellison in which he compared the push to diminish the cloud of superdelegates to the violent suppression of the civil rights movement. In the email first reported on by the Washington Post, Malalin affixed a photo of police beating Representative John Lewis during the 1965 voting rights march in Selma, Alabama. Now I understand that the two of you are conspiring with Bernie Sanders to block Congress members John Lewis, Maxine Waters, Barbara Lee, and the rest of the congressional delegation, governors, state party chairs, and the rest of us DNC members from entering our convention for in 2020 as voters, he wrote. I don't know if you will have paid thugs at the doorways to beat up Congressman Lewis and the rest of us or not. <laughs> you are really dumb, for real. What do you even say to that? I mean, I'm supposed to give you guys political commentary. I don't know what to say. That is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life, hands down. I mean, wow. <laughs> in his mind, making the Democratic Party more inclusive and democratic is against civil rights in his view because he thinks that them ending superdelegates is akin to police beating individuals like john lewis who wanted to expand civil rights no you're taking the side that the cops took in selma you are not in the right here bob you were on the wrong side of history and you are literally arguing to disenfranchise voters when the civil rights act argued for enfranchisement of black voters so to say that with a straight face is absurd. I mean, this is clearly someone who isn't fit to serve on the DNC or anywhere near power and authority, but this is a superdelegate. He's a DNC member. He's a superdelegate. His vote has more power than thousands of voters. How absurd and terrifying is that? Now, look, it's not all bad news because Christine Pelosi, who is Nancy Pelosi's daughter, actually proposed an amendment to ban fossil fuel companies from donating to the DNC, and it was adopted unanimously. So that's a huge step in the right direction. I'd like for them to ban all types of donations from, or donations from all types of special interests, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. But I mean, when you have people like Bob Mulholland talking about the bid to end superdelegates is a Russian plot and that he's not sure if the DNC will have paid thugs to beat up people like John Lewis in favor of Bernie Sanders is fucking insane. I mean, the DNC has spit in Bernie Sanders' face. They've done everything in their power to give progressives the middle finger. They just adopted, the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee just adopted a measure saying you have to be a Democrat to run in 2020, obviously targeting Bernie Sanders, and this dumbass has the nerve to say, oh, well, maybe you're going to have paid thugs beat people up at the behest of Bernie Sanders. I mean, this level of conspiracy mongering, it's really a new low for the party. Um, and to every single baby in the party throwing a tantrum because they can't undermine the will of voters, you're not better than us. Just because you have power and you serve in Congress or serve on the DNC, that doesn't make you any more special than any of us. You should have the same amount of power as we have. 
One vote. That's it. You shouldn't be allowed to undermine the will of voters if they make a decision that you disagree with. That's not how democracy works. If you want to live in that type of environment, then go live in an authoritarian regime. So, as you all know by now, DNC Chairman Tom Perez caused a shitstorm and broke his promise to progressives by endorsing Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon in New York's gubernatorial primary. Now, he has remained completely silent. He hasn't apologized to the progressives he lied to. He hasn't said anything. But someone who did decide to speak out was Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who was asked whether or not Tom Perez should have endorsed Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. And Bernie Sanders was very clear. Absolutely not. Uh, he also called it a huge mistake. So this is what Bernie had to say. New York, your home state, uh, you were born in Brooklyn. Yes. Uh, the, the chairman of the DNC, Tom Perez, endorsed Andrew Cuomo, who's locked in a pretty competitive primary with Cynthia Nixon. Our revolution has endorsed Cynthia Nixon. Do you think that was a mistake for the chair of the DNC? Absolutely. And uh, does, it, does it make it harder to trust that you know, progressive candidates in 2020 will get a fair shake when they're yep. wading into primaries like this? It does. Look. Let us also be clear, maybe I'm the only person here who will tell you this, but, uh, you know, you got Democrats up here who will tell you, oh, Democratic parties, God's gift to the human race, Republicans will tell you the same thing. Look, there is massive discontent with the political system. People don't vote. People often hold their noses uh, and they vote. And I think, you know, by and large, uh, especially in the Democratic Party, what I have said, as you indicated, I am an independent who has caucus with the Democrats, uh, you know, for my whole political life here in Washington, is open the doors of the Democratic Party, welcome working people, welcome young people in, welcome idealism in. So when you have the head of the DNC, and I've worked okay with Perez on, on some areas, and I'll mention that in a moment, but to endorse uh, one candidate over the other is not what the chair of the DNC should be doing. Now, one of the areas that we have worked on, we will see what happens, man, and this will be a very big deal. Right now, as you know, when, when I ran, um, you had uh, many, many super delegates, uh, almost all of whom ended up supporting Hillary Clinton. And I think there is a widespread understanding that's just not right. And in fact, you had super delegates voting for Clinton in states that I won pretty handsomely. And I think there is a general feeling that that does not make a lot of sense. And now there is agreement among Tom Perez and a lot of the Clinton people, as well as our people, who came together and what Clinton and I formed what we called a Democratic uh, Reform, Unity Reform Committee, uh, to say that we should substantially reduce the number of superdelegates, actually by about 70%. Some people think we should eliminate them all, and I could certainly support that. Will that happen? Well, we will see. Pay, pay attention to that. Right. And then you got other issues. In New York State, you know, we talk about voter suppression, one of the great problems of our country. It's not just money in politics. You got Republican governors and attorneys general all over this country trying to make it harder for poor people of people of color to vote. How outrageous is that? Go to New York State and find out that if you're going to participate in the Democratic primary, you have got to be registered as a Democrat six months before that primary. And when I ran in 2016, three million people in New York State were ineligible to vote. Does that make any sense? No. So those are the kinds of hurdles and, and uh, obstacles that I think Democratic leadership has got to transform, change. So as usual, I think that everything that Bernie Sanders said there was on point. 
Yes, of course it was a mistake after you promised progressives that you will remain neutral and let voters make their choice in primaries. Well, you broke that promise and pissed us off and we haven't gotten an apology, no official statement, nothing. The most we got was a DNC spokesperson trying to justify his endorsement by saying, well, you know, he's known the Cuomo family for a long time, he's been friends with them, and that doesn't make it okay. In fact, that shows us that when there is a conflict of interest that might come up, Tom Perez will obviously and publicly take the side of who he supports and who he's been friends with. So since he was the labor secretary of Barack Obama and Joe Biden may run in 2020, that conflict of interest is going to be a lot more problematic than a lot of us initially expected, given that Tom Perez couldn't keep his, keep his mouth shut and just not make an endorsement. He had to come out and publicly endorse Andrew Cuomo because he was so, so close to Andrew Cuomo. So, obviously, you know, uh, when the host there said, does this make it harder to trust that 2020 candidates will get a fair shake? Bernie Sanders agreed with that because, of course, it does. If Tom Perez can't remain impartial during a relatively insignificant primary, you know, uh, by the DNC's standards anyways, this is important to progressives, but for the DNC, I mean, Andrew Cuomo already has an advantage. Do you really feel the need to get in there and endorse him? Well, if he couldn't keep his mouth shut in that instance, then certainly we already know that Tom Perez will be working behind the scenes to sabotage Bernie Sanders in 2020 in the same way that Debbie Wasserman Schultz did in 2016. We can't trust the DNC, and it's things like this that makes it impossible to trust the DNC. Now, I do want to get to what Bernie Sanders said. He recommended that the Democratic Party, quote, open the doors of the Democratic Party, welcome working people, welcome young people, welcome idealism in. And this really is a no-brainer for any party who actually wants to win. But we've learned that Democrats, they don't really care about winning. They care about maintaining their power, their jobs. They want to make sure that the status quo within the Democratic Party continues to remain in place so that way their strategists who are failing them continue to get paid millions of dollars so that way their donors continue to contribute millions upon millions of dollars every single year. I mean, they, they don't want to welcome outsiders in. And it's why even in the era of Donald Trump, they're not doing too hot. Now, Bernie Sanders also kind of veered off and talked about superdelegates, saying, you had some superdelegates voting for Clinton in states that I won pretty handsomely. And I think there is a general feeling that that doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, one thing I want to say is that when it comes to superdelegates, there were a lot of centrist Democrats and Democratic Party loyalists at the time that were accusing Bernie Sanders, ironically, of trying to steal the nomination from Clinton because the argument was that he was trying to flip superdelegates that were going to vote for Clinton after she had already won the nomination. But the thing is that Bernie Sanders was trying to get superdelegates whose constituents supported him to vote for him just because out of the principle that you shouldn't betray what your own constituents who you should be representing want. So the fact that he won states and those superdelegates still cast their vote for Hillary Clinton, it's absurd. It shows that the party doesn't care about what voters want. They only care about what they want. Now, he also talked about the hurdles that Democrats put up using closed primaries as an example and how you had to be registered 
in the Democratic Party six months before the New York primary took place in order to vote for someone like Bernie Sanders. So obviously, that is completely unacceptable. And for a party to often rightly and justifiably speak out against the GOP's voter suppression tactics, they should look in the mirror and make sure that they enfranchise as many voters as possible. But disenfranchising voters is a strategy for Democrats. It's why they're fighting so hard to keep primaries closed and why so many of them are throwing temper tantrums at the prospect of eliminating superdelegates or not even eliminating at reducing the influence of superdelegates. It's because disenfranchising voters is how they keep power. Keeping people out of the Democratic Party is how they maintain their power. You bring in new blood, they may lose their jobs. But they also may lose their seats, but they don't care. So long as the status quo remains intact, that's all they care about. So getting back to the issue at hand, the main question about Tom Perez, Bernie Sanders was absolutely right to unequivocally denounce what Tom Perez did. And this gives me another opportunity to plug the petition where thousands upon thousands of people have now called on DNC Chairman Tom Perez to resign. I'm still getting a lot of feedback and really pushback from progressives saying that really this isn't going to go anywhere and it's not important. But again, you have nothing to lose by signing this petition. All you're doing is making your voice heard. Will Tom Perez probably disregard it? Of course. But the point is that we don't just sit back and let him do whatever he wants and get away with it. We have to raise hell. Even if we are not going to accomplish anything, even if this petition won't lead to him resigning, we still need to do what's right and call him out and hold him accountable in whatever way we can. And if it means a petition, then we'll do the petition. So sign the petition if you care about making your voice heard. And if you disagree with Tom Perez, you need to send a message to the party that we're not going to tolerate any shenanigans in 2020, which is why we're calling out Tom Perez now before he could sabotage Bernie Sanders or another progressive in 2020. So sign the petition, it's the right thing to do, and you need to make your voice heard. Starbucks' billionaire CEO, Howard Schultz, recently decided to step down and end his 36-year run with the company in preparation for what may be a possible White House run in 2020. Now, he's already starting to sound like a tone-deaf politician by telling us peasants that we just can't simply afford things that would improve our lives, like Medicare for All or a jobs guarantee program by the federal government. Now, of course, this was a message that he intended to direct at individuals like Bernie Sanders. So, in an interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN, Bernie was actually asked about Schultz's comments, and I wanted to share what Bernie Sanders had to say because I think he had the most perfect response that you can give to an out-of-touch billionaire like Howard Schultz. One of the pushbacks is... It's expensive what you want to do. Howard Schultz, head of Starbucks, stepping away. Rumor is he may run. What do you think of him as a candidate uh, for Democrats? Let me play you a little bit of sound for him. It concerns me that uh, so many voices within the Democratic Party are going so far to the left. And I ask myself, how are we going to pay for all these things in terms of things like single payer, or people espousing the fact that the government is going to give everyone a job. I don't think that's realistic. All right. Now, Bernie Sanders isn't going to like uh, the spirit of that statement. But what do you think of the lineup of a Schultz as kind of the left's Trump to go up against him? Businessman versus businessman. Uh, Chris, I honestly do not know Mr. Schultz at all. 
Uh, all that I can say What do you think of the comments? I think, well, I think his comment is dead wrong. I think you have a guy uh, who thinks that the United States apparently should remain the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. The truth of the matter is, is I think study after study has indicated that Medicare for all is a much more cost-effective approach mm -hmm. toward health care than our current dysfunctional health care system, which is far and away the most expensive system per capita than any system on earth. So, first of all, before we get to the substance, I can't not point out Bernie Sanders' reaction. I mean, the look on his face when Chris Cuomo asked him about Howard Schultz running was just priceless. I think that Bernie Sanders really was externalizing what we were all feeling on the inside uh, when we heard this out-of-touch billionaire tell us peasants that we can't have what every other country in the world has that's modern, that has, uh, you know, industrialized to the point that we have. We can't have that. Tax cuts for Howard Schultz, that's A-OK. -okay. Healthcare for us peasants, we can't have that. We just can't afford it, guys. Sorry. So let's get to Howard's comments. He states, it concerns me that so many voices in the Democratic Party, Bernie, are going so far to the left, and I ask myself, how are we going to pay for all of these things in terms of things like single-payer or people espousing the fact that the government is going to give everyone a job? I don't think that's realistic. Really now, Howard. So Bernie states, you have a guy who thinks that the United States should remain the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. I mean, really, the People like Howard Schultz in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party who continue to state that these are ideas that are just pie in the sky, we can't afford it. You're pretending as if the United States is the only country on earth. We can look to our neighbors to the north and realize, oh, they did it. They figured out a way to guarantee health care to every single citizen. Other countries in Europe, around the world, have Medicare for all or single payer or some sort of healthcare guarantee, but yet we can't figure it out when we're the richest country in the world? I mean, how stupid do you think we are, Howard? He really thinks that we're stupid, but thankfully, a lot of Americans are waking up and realizing that, you know what? Maybe this idea that we can't have what other modern industrialized countries have is bullshit. Maybe it's just the elites gaslighting us and getting us to accept that we get nothing while the rich get everything. And also, it's always really telling how people who make this we can't afford it argument always apply it to policies that would help people. They never talk about policies that end up leading to death and destruction like war, but if it comes to healthcare or education, we can't afford it. Howard Schultz didn't say we can't afford the trillions of dollars in tax cuts that rich people like himself will be receiving, thanks to Donald Trump. He didn't say anything about us not being able to afford the $700 billion military budget that the Senate just overwhelmingly approved. We just dropped 66 Tomahawk missiles on Syria, and those missiles cost $1.4 each. Did Howard Schultz come out and denounce how we can't afford that and that that's too expensive? Of course he didn't. We spent $2.4 with a T on the Iraq war. Howard Schultz didn't say anything about that either. So, to recap, when it comes to spending money on death and destruction or making rich oligarchs like Howard Schultz richer, that's okay. He has nothing to say about that. But healthcare for us? We can't afford that. 
Well, actually, we can afford that. The problem is that we just don't currently have our priorities in line. But if we stopped wasting money on the military-industrial complex, and we started by taxing rich oligarch assholes like you, Howard, then, yeah, we would be able to easily afford all of these things that every other modern industrialized country is able to afford. We're not unique. We're just like all the other countries in the world. And if any other country can do it, then why can't we? So for him to basically position himself as this practical democrat who's really just you know he's gonna he's not gonna tell you what you want to hear to all you idealists but he is gonna tell you the harsh truth we can't afford it that's bullshit he's gaslighting you of course we can't afford it so if you think that this message is gonna resonate with voters in 2020 howard um i've got really really bad news for you (laughs) so um keep it up because i think that the more corporate democrats like howard schultz open their mouths the more progressives we see emerging in this country. So just when I thought West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin couldn't get any more pathetic than he already is, he managed to surprise me yet again because now he's considering going full MAGA in 2020, saying, quote, I'm open to supporting the person who I think is best for my country and my state. And additionally, to make matters worse, he hasn't ruled out publicly endorsing Donald Trump in 2020. So in other words, in order to stop a Republican from getting his seat, he's willing to go full Republican in the process. So either way, a Republican is getting that seat, Joe. Do you not see the problem? But I mean, he doesn't necessarily care if a Democrat or Republican holds that seat. What he cares about is that his ass occupies that seat. Now, when something like this happens, when a member of your party goes rogue, if you are in leadership, if you're Chuck Schumer, his boss, there are things you can do to rein rogue members of the party back in. You can withhold funding from him for his election. You can uh, remove him from committee appointments. You can do things and exercise authority to make sure that he doesn't do things that make the party look horrible. So how is Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, choosing to penalize Joe Manchin, you ask? Well, in an interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN, he pretty much said, He's not. Joe Manchin, Senator of West Virginia, says he's open to backing Trump in 2020. When does he get a phone call from the Senate Democratic leader? Our senators are wonderful people. We have great unity in our caucus. And one of the reasons we do is I let people come to their own decisions. I'll tell them what I think, but there's no arm twisting. There's no, you'll lose your committee. I won't put bills on the floor. I've done none. I've had to do none of that. And people come together. Joe Manchin is a guy who likes to talk to everybody and listen to them and almost inevitably he does what's right for west virginia i might back trump in 2020 never heard a sitting democrat or republican say that about a president from the out party i have faith joe manchin will come to the right decision for west virginia he almost always has people never thought you know he he was one of our strongest people on health care why 
because the people of West Virginia so desperately need health care. Is this a reflection of the weakness of the Democratic Party in states like West Virginia? We've stayed totally united. We are doing so much better than people think. There's a public poll that showed Manchin up 13 points over his opponent. And why would he say something like this? Joe Manchin always keeps his options open to do what's best for West Virginia. I have confidence he'll do the right thing. So that, to me, has got to be one of the most embarrassing interviews Chuck Schumer has ever given. How can you say those words and not hide your face afterwards and be completely ashamed of yourself? He said, we have great unity in our caucus, and one of the things I do is let people come to their own decisions. Well, clearly you don't have great unity, Chuck, if one of your own members is thinking about endorsing the other party's president. So, obviously you don't have unity, and one of the things you can do to try to at least make rogue members of the party acquiesce under your leadership is uh you can use multiple tools at your disposal again you can uh, remove him from committees you can try to withhold funding from him but you're choosing to not do that and that's not leadership chuck that's just chaos and anarchy and joe manchin is making the party look worse than it already looks and he's bringing all of you down and you're not choosing to do anything about it you're choosing to let him go rogue and if you're too much of a coward and lack the courage needed to be in a leadership position then you need to resign you don't have to step down from Congress or from the Senate, but you certainly shouldn't be in a leadership position if you have zero courage whatsoever. If you lack a spine to stand up to someone in your own party, how are we going to expect you to stand up to the opposing party? We can't. Now, he states, almost inevitably, Joe Manchin is a guy who does what's right for West Virginia. But that implies Joe Manchin is representing his constituents in West Virginia when the opposite is true. Just to give you one example, when all 55 counties in West Virginia voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016, he still voted for Hillary Clinton. He used his vote as a superdelegate to support Hillary Clinton, completely ignoring the will of every district in his state. Does that sound like someone who is standing up for what's right for West Virginia? Furthermore, Chuck Schumer is tacitly admitting that supporting Trump might be the right thing for West Virginians. If you're saying Joe Manchin almost inevitably does what's right for West Virginians, then you're basically admitting that going Trump is the best thing for West Virginians, Chuck. Do you not realize how foolish you sound? You are emboldening Republicans. If members of the party you lead are siding with the opposite party, that makes you look horrible. It makes the whole party look terrible. But don't worry because uh, Chuck Schumer says that he has faith in Joe Manchin that he'll do the right thing. Yeah, he'll do the right thing for his corporate donors. That's exactly what he's going to do. Now, if you're wondering why Chuck Schumer doesn't seem outraged at the fact that someone from his own party, who he presides over, might flip and go full MAGA in 2020, well, it's because Chuck Schumer himself kind of wants to work with Republicans. In fact, this is what he said specifically, if Democrats take back the Senate. If we get in the majority, we'll see. If we get in the majority, we'll have Republicans working with us far more than um, when they were in power having us work with them. But doesn't that mean that they are more fair and interested in bipartisanship than you? It means we're going to reach out. They rejected us. As I mentioned to you, on the major issues, they do what's called reconciliation. Right. We don't want or need Democratic votes. Had they included us in health care, had they included us in the tax bill, it would have been a far better bill for the middle class, and they would have been better off. That's why they're suffering now.
I am utterly flabbergasted by Chuck Schumer. He has to be the most feckless leader in the Democratic Party's history. I mean, Republicans have all but ripped off his neck and shit down his throat. And he's still saying that at the first opportunity he has, he's going to reach out. He's going to try to hold hands with them and sing Kumbaya. So after this party, after Republicans obstructed everything Obama did over the last eight years, they literally blocked and ultimately stole a vacant Supreme Court seat. They blocked Democrats from participating in discussions related to tax reform and health care and did everything in their power to spit in the faces of Democrats like Chuck Schumer. What does he say? Oh, well, I still want to reach out and work with them. I mean, you're just, you're just a joke. I, I honestly am speechless at this. I don't know what to say. How embarrassing for Chuck Schumer. And he thinks that he's being the grown-up by reaching out to Republicans. They don't want to be friends with you, Chuck. They don't give a fuck about you or Democrats. They are ruthless, they are relentless, and they will do everything in their power to crush you. And the fact that you don't have a spine and you're unwilling to stand up to them, you are emboldening them. Chuck Schumer has got to be a fucking masochist. What is it going to take to get him and other like-minded Democrats to actually stand up to Republicans and fight fire with fire? for once. I mean, they already caved on DACA. They totally stopped fighting for dreamers. They're letting Trump get away with one of the biggest scandals in decades by ignoring thousands of people he let die in Puerto Rico. And now they're letting their own fucking party slide to the right by actually endorsing one of the most morally bankrupt and corrupt administrations ever. I mean, this is exactly why Republicans have become so extremist and right wing. When you compare them to other conservative parties around the world and in Europe, they're way further to the right. They're more similar to fringe right-wing extremist parties in Europe than they are to other conservative parties. And that's because they face no real opposition. The Democratic Party has absolutely no idea how to resist. Part of the reason why Erdogan has been so efficient at consolidating power in Turkey is because the main opposition party in that country, CHP, is completely toothless and in the United States, we're seeing the same type of consequence as a result of the opposition party's spinelessness. And Republicans, which are currently a minority party that's only supported by a quarter of the population, control everything. And they will shape policy, if not entirely control policy in this country for years to come because of how weak and spineless Democrats like Chuck Schumer are. If they spent half as much energy resisting Republicans as fiercely as they resist progressives in their own party, the country might actually be in a lot better shape than it is currently, but instead, they're so far gone that when their own members openly flirt with the idea of endorsing Donald fucking Trump in 2020, they don't reprimand him at all, and it's because they want to work with and appease Republicans themselves. I mean, at a time when Republicans are as duplicitous and ruthless as they've ever been, they should be adopting a bold populist agenda in order to force Republicans to move back towards the center and support some of the policies that are overwhelmingly supported by Americans. But instead, what did they do? They just let Republicans monopolize political discourse in this country. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Chuck Schumer is a complete embarrassment. And if he had any dignity or sense of care for the country left, he would resign because Democrats need a leader who actually has a spine 
Chuck Schumer doesn't have that. If you can't stand up to people in your own party, you can't stand up to Republicans. And as a result, they are ruining the country because of your feckless leadership. So you need to resign, Chuck, because clearly you don't know what you're doing or you don't want to do the right thing. And you don't have the courage to stand up to people in your own party who are clearly making you all look bad. As you all know, the repeal of net neutrality has officially gone into effect. And unless you are one of the 7.4 million residents that live in Washington state, you are now vulnerable. Now, yes, it is the case that other states have made progress. There's a lot of bills circulating. State legislatures, Oregon passed the law. Um, some governors have issued executive orders, but for the most part, Nobody is fully protected unless they live in Washington state. Now, to really explain the consequences of this repeal, we go to an article by Kaylee Rogers in Vice, who explains it's the dawn of a new era in America, one without any net neutrality protections, unless you happen to live in Washington state. On Monday, the Federal Communications Commission's repeal of federal net neutrality protections officially went into effect. The end of those rules triggered a new state law in Washington that passed in March, but would only go into effect once the federal rules changed. The Washington law prohibits telecom providers from blocking content or devices, throttling traffic, or participating in paid prioritization. Other states, such as California, New York, and Illinois, have made significant progress towards passing state-level net neutrality protections, but so far only Washington and Oregon, which has a law that won't go into effect until next year, have signed them into law. There are other states with some protections in place, but they aren't as broad as Washington's. The governors of multiple states, including New York, Montana, and Vermont, have issued executive orders imposing net neutrality requirements, but these orders only apply to ISPs that have contracts with the state and don't cover all customers. Another tactic some state lawmakers have been trying is to sue the FCC. More than 20 states have filed lawsuits hoping to legally reverse the FCC's decision and restore net neutrality nationwide rather than creating a patchwork of protection state by state. So understand that this is going to be a really, really long battle. And even though states have made progress and even signed net neutrality into law in Oregon, well, unless you live in Washington state at this moment in time, you are currently vulnerable. So the repeal of net neutrality went into effect. And then a day later, we learned that a judge just approved AT&T's bid to buy Time Warner. So now, I mean, you have so much concentrated power that these major companies can implement whatever anti-consumer policies they want to and never have to worry about consumer backlash or consumers going to competitors because... There are no other competitors. I'm sorry, our company doesn't work that way. You want me to give you the number of a different cable company that can... Oh, wait, we're it, aren't we? At a time when we see media consolidation and a judge would ignore antitrust laws and approve this merger, we need net neutrality more than ever, but we don't have it. Now... What right-wingers will tell you is that, look, you know, it's gone and nothing, nothing is happening, right? The internet is still the same. Well, I don't think we're going to see brazen violations of net neutrality right away. I think it's going to be a trickle. Little by little, we'll see these companies get increasingly greedy 
And a lot of them may even wait to do anything arbitrary until some of these court cases are solved because they don't want to deal with the headache. And furthermore, some internet service providers like Comcast are legally obligated to abide by net neutrality until September of this year. So there's a couple of extra months, you know, that consumers will get um, if they do have Comcast as their ISP. So look, this is a scary time right now. But understand, we don't stop fighting. We continue advocating for net neutrality and understand that states are making progress, but we've also got to make progress and keep pressure on them. Hopefully, California will join Washington. Um, and yeah, hopefully Oregon... We don't get screwed over too bad. I think in Oregon, just the fact that that law is looming over the heads of internet service providers will probably thwart off any overt violations of net neutrality. But I mean, you just can't be sure. So look, it's a scary time uh, for the internet, but certainly, you know, we, we've got to keep fighting and advocating vociferously and passionately for net neutrality because this is too important. And if, if we lose this battle, the internet will look completely different in 10 years than it does today. And I hope I'm wrong. But I know that these companies are too greedy and that I'm going to be proven right. So Ajit Pai got what he wanted. He won for now, but that doesn't mean we stop fighting. So by now, you all know that the FCC's repeal of net neutrality has officially gone into effect. Now, to talk about what this means for the American people, Ajit Pai went on Fox News, which is basically state media at this point, and he proceeded to gaslight viewers and actually hilariously claimed that what he did in repealing net neutrality is good for individuals that support a free and open internet because he himself supports a free and open internet. I know, it's, it's as ridiculous as it sounds, but nonetheless, this is what he had to say. A turning point today in the years-long battle over net neutrality. The Federal Communications Commission officially ending the Obama-era regulations that treated private internet service providers like public utilities. The FCC's restoring internet freedom order taking effect today. And joining me now in studio is FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. I'm so glad to have you here because... I've admired you for so long upon many things. I know that net neutrality is an important issue and that many on the left and the Democrats, like, this is one of the most important issues. I look at polls, often in the top five. And I've got to ask you, why? <laughs> and secondly, what, does, what is the practical effect of the action you're taking today on somebody, anybody in this room that would be searching? searching on the internet. Well, the bottom line for consumers going forward is that the internet is going to be better than ever. We're going to see better, faster, cheaper internet access for people who are too long have been on the wrong side of the digital divide. We're going to see new applications and services go forward to benefit consumers. So I think a lot of the fears that politicians and activists have been putting out there are going to be proven to be misinformed. Now, the Senate did actually pass this with some help from three Republicans. Take a listen. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, wrote this. It's now as clear as day to every American that with the exception of three Republicans in the Senate, the Republican representatives in the Congress chose to protect special interests and their big corporate, uh, biggest corporates over middle class families, average consumers, entrepreneurs, and anyone who relies on the free and open internet. Every Republican who opposed this vote will own any and all of the damaging consequences of the FCC's horribly misguided decision. You know, uh, it's interesting. The Democrats had said also, you know, lots of things like when President Trump became president, then the economy was going to collapse. That's clearly not happened. When it comes to something like net neutrality, 
is Senator Schumer sort of, you know, chicken little? I do think that some of the politicization of this issue, the proclamations of fear and doom are unfortunate because it obscures the real common ground here. I believe in a free and open Internet. I think most people do. And going forward, these regulations, which are the same regulations we had for 20 years, starting with the Clinton administration, are going to serve consumers very well. And so I would hope that reasonable people would put aside the political rhetoric, the grandstanding, the fear mongering and look at the facts. The facts are pretty boring in some cases, but Mm -hmm. ultimately it's going to be better for the Internet economy. Now, before we address the substance, not that there was much substance there, but before we get to what Ajit Pai said, I do want to address the host, Dana Perina, because, I mean, that is essentially propaganda 101 right there, what she did. Completely failed to ask him any real questions, she just threw him a softball, and she refused to hold him accountable in any way, shape, or form. She didn't ask him about one of the many corruption scandals, like Ajit Pai's relationship with Bob Quinn, who is the lobbyist fired by AT&T that colluded with Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen. She could have also asked him about why the FCC faked a DDoS attack, or why Ajit Pai is currently obstructing justice by refusing to comply with New York Attorney General's office and their investigation into comment fraud. She could have asked why Ajit Pai hasn't resigned due to the numerous corruption allegations lobbed against him, or she could have asked why he's so shamelessly corrupt that even his own agency is investigating him. Nope, she brought up none of that. Now, after they went on to talk about some other unrelated issues, she ended the interview by complimenting him. Well, you are a cheerful, happy warrior and a, and a, and a really committed public servant. We appreciate you being you. here today. So that has to be the most disingenuous thing I've heard anyone in cable news say in a really long time. She actually said with a straight face that Ajit Pai is, quote, a committed public servant. Really, Dana? Do you know anything about Ajit Pai at all? Anything? He's the exact opposite of a public servant. To call him a public servant would imply that he's serving the people. But he's doing the opposite of that. He just ignored 20 million comments submitted to the FCC telling him to leave the internet alone. He just gave the middle finger to the overwhelming majority of Democrats and Republicans, all Americans, who support net neutrality by repealing it. So to say that he's a committed public servant is so laughable, it's absurd. And Dana, you are nothing more than a propagandist, so you should be 100% ashamed of, of yourself. I mean, you got into journalism presumably because you cared, right? So why on earth would you prop up a liar and a corrupt corporate shill like Ajit Pai when it makes you look like a fool because the overwhelming majority of people know he's full of shit? Why would you do that? It's because that corporate cash you're taking from your employer at Fox News probably told you to do that. So, I mean, I shouldn't be mad at Dana. She's nothing more than a puppet. But let's get to what Ajit Pai said, because he's pretending to advocate for what we all care about, which is bullshit. He states the Internet is going to be better than ever. We'll see better, faster, cheaper Internet access. So I think a lot of the fears that politicians and activists have been putting out there are going to be proven to be misinformed. So he's literally arguing that the internet will be better than ever by allowing internet service providers to block and throttle their competitors. 
that's going to make the internet better than ever and cheaper than ever. Now, what he's probably alluding to there is that by allowing ISPs to disaggregate the internet and sell, let's say, a social media only package with Facebook and Twitter for 10 bucks a month, that it's going to be cheaper. But that's not good for the consumer. The opposite is true. Slowly turning the internet into television is horrible for consumers. So to suggest that we're going to be proven wrong is complete horseshit and he doesn't even care about the facts because just days after the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality in 2017 he said well look they're already proven wrong because we voted to repeal net neutrality and all the horrible things they said would happen didn't happen yet. Now he knew being the FCC chairman that the repeal order wouldn't go into effect for months, but he said that anyway. So this guy is as disingenuous and deceitful and duplicitous as a politician comes in Washington, D.C. So any and everything he says is probably not just false, but the opposite is probably true. Now, he also states, I believe in a free and open internet. That's just hilarious. I think most people do. And going forward, these regulations, which, which are the same regulations we had for 20 years, starting with the Clinton administration, are going to serve consumers very well. Well, I hope that reasonable people would put aside the political rhetoric and the grandstanding and look at the facts. So what he's doing there is gaslighting you. And I think that if you want to explain to someone and educate them about gaslighting and what it is, this is the clip you've got to show them because that's exactly what he's doing. He's telling you that he supports a free and open internet. Meanwhile, he just voted to remove crucial regulations that guarantee the internet will in fact remain free and open. And again, he's claiming that net neutrality is a new phenomenon. That's not true. Title II was new, yes, but it just allowed the FCC to enforce net neutrality by regulating the internet in the same way it regulates other utilities. That's the only difference. It was a different way to enforce the same policy of net neutrality, which has pretty much always been the standard. And the reason why net neutrality is so important is because companies have already shown that they don't care about net neutrality. Comcast literally throttled Netflix. And once they extorted Netflix and got Netflix to pay them millions of dollars, then all of a sudden their speeds were faster than ever. So it's not like what we're all saying is hypothetical. It's already happened. There's been numerous violations of net neutrality, which is why activists and true proponents of a free and open internet vociferously advocated for net neutrality rules because that stops these greedy internet service providers that don't care about consumers but only their profits from closing off sections of the internet and charging their customers more for it. So Ajit Pai, the extent to which he lies, I don't know how he's not too ashamed to show his face in public. Nobody believes what he's saying. It's complete bullshit. But yet he goes on TV and he lies anyway. Well, you're not fooling anyone, Ajit Pai. It's why the overwhelming majority of the population still agrees with us. The real proponents of a free and open internet. And we disagree with you because we know you're full of shit because you're a corporate shill. Last year, John Oliver, who is the host of HBO's incredibly popular show last week tonight, he talked about net neutrality and he instructed all of his viewers to go file a comment on the FCC's website and tell them to leave the internet alone. Now, what happened was that so many of his viewers heeded his call and did that, that they crashed the FCC's website. Now, the FCC has since claimed that the website actually went down because of a DDoS attack. Now, the FCC hasn't actually provided the public with even a single shred of evidence 
to prove that this was the case? Probably because this wasn't the case. It was a lie. The FCC's website crashed because there was a surge in traffic. That's it. But by calling it a DDoS attack, they not only made themselves look like the victims, but they could pretend as if there was nothing they could do. So conveniently, when a bunch of pro-net neutrality commenters wanted to voice their opinion, oops, sorry everyone, looks like we were attacked and the website's down. Now to make it seem as though this narrative was more credible and that a DDoS attack did in fact happen in 2017, well all of a sudden, FCC officials started talking about a DDoS attack that happened in 2014. Now we've never heard them say this before, publicly anyways. And it also happened when uh, John Oliver then also instructed his viewers to submit comments. So the whole situation stinks. But what's interesting is that their lie about this DDoS attack occurring in 2014 came back to bite them in the ass in a really big way because it's now showing that they're lying in 2017 as well. So as Del Cameron of Gizmodo reports, as it wrestled with accusations about a fake cyber attack last spring, the Federal Communications Commission purposely misled several news organizations choosing to feed journalists false information while at the same time discouraging them from challenging the agency's official story. Internal emails reviewed by Gizmodo lay bare the agency's efforts to counter rife speculation that senior officials manufactured a cyber attack, allegedly to explain away technical problems plaguing the FCC's comment system amid its high-profile collection of public comments on a controversial and since-past proposal to overturn federal net neutrality rules. The FCC has been unwilling or unable to produce any evidence an attack occurred, not to the reporters who have requested and even sued over it, and not to the U.S. lawmakers who have demanded to see it. Instead, the agency conducted a quiet campaign to bolster its cyber attack story with the aid of friendly and easily duped reporters, chiefly by spreading word of an earlier cyber attack that its own security staff say never happened. The FCC's system was overwhelmed on the night of May 7, 2017, after comedian John Oliver, host of HBO's Last Week Tonight, directed his audience to flood the agency with comments supporting net neutrality. In the immediate aftermath, the agency claimed the comment system had been deliberately impaired due to a series of distributed denial-of-service attacks. Net neutrality supporters, however, accused the agency of fabricating the attack to absolve itself from failing to keep the system online. The system similarly crashed after Oliver ordered his viewers to the FCC website in 2014. The FCC, at the time, led by Democrat Tom Wheeler, determined that the comment system had been affected by a surge of internet traffic. The issue was compounded, sources told Gizmodo, by a weakness in the system's out-of-date software. Importantly, the agency never blamed a malicious attack for the system's downtime in 2014, not in any official statement. But in May 2017, under the Trump-appointed chairman Ajit Pai, at least two FCC officials quietly pushed a fallacious account of the 2014 incident, attempting to persuade reporters that the comment system had long been the target of DDoS attacks. Quote, there was a DDoS event right after the John Oliver video in 2014, one official told reporters at FedScoop, according to emails reviewed by Gizmodo. Okay, so there's a lot of moving parts in this story, so let me summarize what's going on because this is pretty confusing. So, basically, John Oliver directed his viewers to file comments on the FCC's website. It then crashed, and after it crashed, because the FCC 
presumably didn't want the system flooded with a bunch of pro-net neutrality comments, they decided to just not work quickly to bring the website back up and chalked it up to a DDoS attack. Now, in order to bolster their claims that a DDoS attack occurred, they decided to then make up a lie about another DDoS attack occurring in 2014 in order to make it seem as though this was a frequent occurrence at the FCC. And the lengths that they went to prove that a DDoS attack occurred in 2014 in an effort to make them look more credible in 2017 is where this story gets really crazy because it's just astonishing. So there's an individual named David Bray. Now, this guy served as the FCC's chief information officer from 2013 to 2017. Now, to presumably make Ajit Pai look better, he was one of the main individuals pushing this false claim that there was a DDoS attack in 2014 and that the last FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, actually covered up that DDoS attack in 2014 in order to discourage possible copycats. Now, Bray never said this publicly. Instead, he quietly pushed this narrative in emails with reporters. And now that these emails have been obtained by and published by Gizmodo, well, the last FCC chairman and his former counselor are learning about this and they're just coming out and saying, this is 100% false. It's fabricated. And he never claimed that there was a DDoS attack in 2014 because there was no evidence that a DDoS attack occurred. As Tom Wheeler stated, the website was just overwhelmed. There was no malicious attack. Now, once others in the agency, Ajit Pai, um, other individuals, started to claim that there was a DDoS attack in 2017, well, Bray was one of the individuals that uh, really pushed this narrative that there was, in fact, a DDoS attack in 2014, and we just never told you about this. It was a conspiracy. It was literally a cover-up by the last FCC chairman, and he really reinforced this narrative by planting stories with reporters, so he only spoke to them on the condition of anonymity, and Bray was personally personally invested in pushing this narrative because his ass was literally on the line. He was the senior official tasked with maintaining the FCC comment system and he didn't want to take responsibility or get in trouble. So he just claimed that the FCC website went down in 2014 and then in 2017 due to numerous DDoS attacks when we never even heard anyone publicly say that there was a DDoS attack in 2014. So again, it wasn't until they wanted to make themselves look more credible in 2017 that they started talking about the 2014 DDoS attack. Now, what's interesting is that Bray actually managed to dupe over one gullible reporter from the Wall Street Journal who actually went along with his fake conspiracy about this alleged cover-up that the last FCC chairman did and how he concealed details about a huge DDoS attack that occurred in 2014. And once Bray was able to dupe over this one journalist from the Wall Street Journal, he then took that story, shared it around, shared it with other reporters, shared it in email responses to citizens, and basically said, look, this is the evidence. So, I mean, think about how disingenuous this guy is. He plants this narrative in the media, dupes over a reporter, and once he has a credible source citing this as fact, he then says, look, here's evidence. I have this source from the Wall Street Journal. Meanwhile, he's not telling anyone that he's the source. He's the one that planted that narrative, but now he's uh, parading this article around as if it's evidence, but I mean, it wasn't just the Wall Street Journal. After he had the quote evidence that he needed, he then used that article to bolster his claim and started telling journalists to equate the alleged 2017 DDoS attack to a similar attack that happened to Pokemon Go. And guess what? Another journalist, this time from ZDNet, literally did just that. 
and like a good little stooge, published a propaganda piece reporting exactly what Bray wanted him to report, parroting his claim about Pokemon Go, and when a different journalist at ZDNet that had more common sense published a different story asking for more evidence, the journalist that ended up parroting Bray's talking point actually attacked his own colleague and told Bray that the FCC should publicly demand a correction to the story and that Bray himself should complain to the boss of ZDNet because one of their journalists dared to question the official narrative that was handed down from the FCC. So this idiot journalist bought the narrative that Bray, this guy was pushing, hook, line, and sinker, and bought it so much that he attacked his own colleague for daring to ask for evidence. I mean, this story, it goes deep, really. This is about a cover-up. This is about media collusion. This is about, about propaganda. It really gives you some insight as to how corrupt and duplicitous the FCC has become under the leadership of Ajit Pai in order to hide the facts and gaslight American citizens. And it's absolutely despicable. And again, every week there's a new scandal involving either Ajit Pai or the FCC. And this is probably one of the bigger scandals to come out because it just shows how brazenly disingenuous these people are. I mean, the chief information officer, Bray, this guy in the picture here, was willing to cook up a conspiracy about the last FCC chairman concealing details about a 2014 DDoS attack all to make Ajit Pai's bullshit claim about a 2017 DDoS attack look more credible. It's absolutely absurd, and I don't know how Ajit Pai isn't facing massive pressure from lawmakers to resign after we keep seeing scandal after scandal after scandal and lie after lie that uh, he keeps giving to the American people. It's absolutely unacceptable. There were some really important elections taking place around the country, and one of them happened to be in the 4th Congressional District of Nevada. Of course, the whole state held primaries, but the race we've been watching closely included a progressive named Amy Valela, who you all know by now, and um, the results should be in by now. I actually, at the time I'm recording this, I haven't looked yet. I've been recording all day, and um, I'm going to see the results for the first time. I'm incredibly nervous. I feel like there's a ball in the pit of my stomach and I'm afraid to look. But let me just say this before I look. Regardless of the outcome, I have no doubt in my mind that Amy Valela ran the best campaign she possibly could run. She raised $200,000 all from small donors. That is absolutely remarkable. And she's not just someone who is a good person who decided to take tragedy and turn it around and fight for everyone else. She's not just someone who I consider a friend. Her and her husband, David, they're friends to me, and I, I, I look up to them so much. But if she were elected, I have no doubt in my mind that she would be one of the best members of Congress who would always fight for the people and do the right thing. So uh, I'm going to look at the results, and uh, we'll see. By now, by the way, you all who are watching this know the results, so I'm seeing this for the first time. Uh, I feel so nervous right now, but let's see. So, it looks like we have some results from other elections. Let's go to the 4th District.
Wow. So, Amy Valela lost. She came in third. And Stephen Horsford clinched the vote with 62.4%. And they're calling it. Politico is calling it. And now, currently, we have 50% of precincts reporting. So, maybe the results can change. But at this point, even Pat Spearman um, beat Amy Valela. So, Amy Valela has 8.8% of the vote. So, let me just explain to people in the 4th District of Nevada what you just did. You just chose a lobbyist, someone who was already in that district but lost after one term, then went to Washington, D.C. to become a lobbyist, and then only came back once he saw an opportunity to bolster his own political career. You just chose that guy. And in second, we have Pat Spearman, an individual who really is proposing no real policy solutions but completely espouses platitudes over and over. So this is an incredibly disappointing outcome. Yeah, they're calling it for Stephen Horsford, and it seems like turnout is incredibly low because he won with 17,000 votes. Amy Valela got 2,300. That's that's not a lot. So, um, yeah, hopefully the results change, but for now, I mean, this is, this is the worst-case scenario for her to come in... Uh, and third, let's check, see if the results changed. See, and this is why I didn't want to look until like hours later. So the polls closed at 7, I believe. It's now 10 p.m. Pacific time. I didn't want to look because if I did, then I'd just be refreshing it over and over and over. But I mean, they're calling it for Stephen Horsford. The establishment backed Biden endorsed candidate beat out someone who actually would have represented the people of the 4th District. I mean, it, people, you need to stop just voting without doing any research. You're, you're voting for people who don't give a fuck about you. you. You literally voted against your own interests by picking a lobbyist or someone who cares about the people. The fact that Stephen Horsford won when he stands for not a single fucking thing is just embarrassing. And I wouldn't be surprised if he lost to the Republican. Because that is... A district that's relatively purple. So, I mean, if, if you have a district like that, you want to put up a progressive that can excite the base. But instead, the establishment came out in favor of a lobbyist, Stephen Horsford, and they said, fuck you to Amy Valera, someone who cared about the people, cared very deeply about the issues. So, um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have uh, <laughs> looked at this um, or not looked at this until now because now I'm just angry, but... Um, yeah. So, final results here. Stephen Horsford with um, 62.4%. Pat Smearman coming in second with 15.3%. Amy Valela coming in third with 8.8%. And we have John Anzalone and Allison Stevens tying at 5.8%. And then somebody named Sid Zeller at 2%. Yeah. Definitely disappointing to... Uh, to say the least. Well, to say that I am surprised would be an understatement. The summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un actually happened and he didn't fuck it up. So this was historic. 
he met with Kim Jong-un and thankfully he didn't do one of those stupidly aggressive handshakes that he usually does. I mean, it was kind of long and awkward, but nonetheless, things seemed to go relatively well and it seemed as if they were getting along. I feel really great. We're going to have a great discussion and I think tremendous success. They'll be tremendously successful. And it's my honor and uh, we will have a terrific relationship, I have no doubt. Well, it was not easy to get here. The past fit, uh, worked as fetters on our limbs and uh, the old prejudices and practices uh, worked as obstacles on our way forward but we overcame all of them and we are here today. That's true. So I think that overall, this is a really good thing. This is a huge step in the right direction. Will this actually um, ensure that there's lasting peace between North Korea and South Korea and North Korea and the United States? Not necessarily, but obviously it's a step in the right direction. And at this point in time, I don't think anybody can make any definitive assessments because it's still so early. We don't necessarily know how the outcome uh, or how this will all turn out and what the ultimate outcome will be. There are supposed to be more planned summits, but for the most part, look, the fact that they're trying to create peace is definitely praiseworthy. Uh, I'll give Donald Trump credit where it's due. He didn't fuck it up. There wasn't no international incident. They didn't start fighting each other. Because, <laughs> I mean, anything's in the realm of possibility at this point, I think. But the fact that it went well um, really leaves me hopeful. So I'm glad that this happened. And yes, maybe Donald Trump is doing this for egotistical reasons because he wants to be praised or he wants a Nobel Peace Prize. Maybe he's doing this to sell real estate to Pyongyang. Maybe he's getting more credit than he deserves since South Korean Prime Minister Moon Jae-in is really the one who's doing everything he can to make all this possible. And maybe Dennis Rodman is the one who really push Donald Trump or Kim Jong-un to come to the table. I'm not necessarily sure, but nonetheless, this is a great thing to see. And if you care about peace, then this is absolutely something that we should all celebrate. I'd be celebrating this if Obama did it or if Bernie Sanders did it. And I'm not going to change my stance on diplomacy because I don't like Donald Trump and I'm generally very anti-Trump. I can put aside my feelings about Trump and be objective and commend him for doing something that will hopefully facilitate peace. Now, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un did sign a deal, and it is admittedly pretty weak, but I'll take a weak deal over no deal at all. Um, but let's go ahead and look at some of the details, because I do still think it's an accomplishment worth celebrating. So, as Bloomberg explains, President Donald Trump sold his nuclear agreement with North Korea on Tuesday as different from and better than any that's gone before. Measured against previous deals, though, the two-page document had similar language and was distinct mainly for being vague. The statement Trump signed with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un committed them both to the complete denuclearization of 
of the Korean Peninsula, as well as to a new relationship, a peace regime, and security guarantees, none of which were defined. The omission of the words verifiable and irreversible from the phrasing on denuclearization suggested North Korean resistance to Trump's requests. If North Korea were genuinely interested in denuclearizing, none of these maneuvers would be necessary, said Adam Mount, senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. That matters because North Korea has pledged to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula in virtually all agreements since 1992, but implementation has broken down due to a lack of consensus on what that means. Pyongyang has since pulled out of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, built a complete nuclear fuel cycle, assembled an arsenal of nuclear weapons, and developed the missiles to fire them. Previous U.S.-North Korea agreements ultimately failed despite being more concrete and demanding of Pyongyang than the one Trump and Kim signed. Those include the 1994 agreed framework negotiated during the Clinton administration, which Trump specifically attacked during a post-summit press conference on Tuesday. He described it as a failure that got nothing at a cost of $3 billion in giveaways. Trump said verification processes had been discussed at the summit and that Kim understood it would involve accepting large numbers of the U.S. and international personnel. Other commitments also didn't make it into the text, he said, including his own plan to halt war games with South Korea. He said Kim told him he had just destroyed a missile engine testing site. So there's a couple of takeaways. Um, first of all is that this deal is obviously weaker than something like the Iran nuclear deal. It's weaker than previous agreements we signed with North Korea, and it's certainly weaker than the deal Donald Trump just tore up, claiming it was too weak and that the United States was being taken advantage of. So, you know, that's a little bit ironic there. But additionally, they're both conceding in that Kim Jong-un is promising to denuclearize and Donald Trump is promising to end war games. Now, some people are saying that Donald Trump is giving away too much in choosing to end war games, but that's a complete waste of time anyway. All it does is further fan the flames and it does nothing for us. We're just flexing to piss off Kim Jong-un. So giving that away is meaningless. I think that Trump was right to do that. Now, at the same time, even though they've both agreed to concessions, those concessions aren't codified. They're not in this document. But with that being said, future iterations of some type of agreement may include these concessions. They just don't currently. Now, the main problem is that the agreement itself doesn't actually include provisions to verify that Kim Jong-un is even complying with the terms of the agreement. And it doesn't say anything about letting the International Atomic Energy Agency in to inspect whether or not he's in compliance. But with that being said, the agreement that they both signed actually does lay out future goals for negotiations, so it could be something in the future that makes it in. But, I mean, most importantly... It does state that both sides will work to build a lasting and stable peace regime. So, I mean, at this point, I'm going to take it as a win. Is the deal weak? Yes, it's, it's obviously weaker than the Iran deal. But I think that the mere fact that they're not going to exchange threats every other week is a huge step in the right direction. The goal is peace. And if this gets them to just stop threatening each other then, you know, it's a step in the right direction. It may not be perfect, but, you know, I'll take what we can get. It, it's certainly better than Donald Trump basically uh, threatening fire and fury. I forget the exact exact language they used when referring to Kim Jong-un, but, I mean, he's alluded to nuking them 
multiple times. The fact that he even signed this deal and that it states explicitly that they both agreed to lasting peace, I think that that's really important. Will Trump change his mind in a few days and rip up the deal? It's entirely possible, but for the most part, credit where it's due, I think Donald Trump did something good here. I think that it's difficult for liberals to admit that, but we really have to stop being hacks and playing for our team and only rooting for our team. If Donald Trump is going to stop threatening Kim Jong-un over Twitter, I will take it. So look, at this point, the details are just still really early. Anyone who is truly claiming to know whether or not this is a failure can't really say that because this is just the start of negotiations. It was one of more planned summits. So we don't know if this will go anywhere. It still could all fall through. We just, we don't know. And that's the point. But for the most part, the fact that they're trying, the effort is commendable in my opinion. So we do need to wait and see what happens after they meet in the future and how the negotiations and what, you know, a final bilateral agreement pans out. But I think that for now, this is a gigantic step in the right direction, and I certainly am thankful that the summit occurred. I mean, when when Donald Trump has warmongers like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo in his ear, the fact that he's even considering diplomacy, knowing how gullible and easily influenced he is, is... It's good. This is good. This is a step in the right direction. So if you favor peace, then um, you should join me in rooting Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un on here. Now, does this mean that the president is legitimizing a dictatorship? Of course it doesn't. Look, there's a lot of dictatorships that we are allied with, uh, Saudi Arabia being one of them, and Kim Jong-un is a terrible person. But if we invade them, That's not going to solve anything. We always only make matters worse. So the fact that us not invading them and peace between both countries might be a possibility as a result of some type of agreement, I think that's cause for celebration. It doesn't mean North Korea is great. doesn't mean we're great. It just means these two countries aren't going to bomb each other. That's good if you care about peace. When President Obama signed the Iran nuclear deal and restored diplomatic ties with Cuba, Fox News relentlessly and aggressively attacked him for it. So now that President Donald Trump is trying to open up a dialogue between the United States and a sworn enemy of our country, North Korea, Fox News is attacking Trump with the same fervor, right? Nope. Absolutely not. So now this put together a video compilation showing just how hypocritical and hacky Fox News pundits really are. Would you, as president, meet with the leaders of a country like North Korea? Obama extraordinarily said, I'd meet with him. Senator Obama made his intentions crystal clear on the campaign trail. I will meet not just with our friends, but with our enemies. President Obama likes talking to dictators. He would meet with some of these madmen without any preconditions. You know, I'm going to reach out to these crazy people uh, around the world and try to get things done. I think that's a mistake. Obama is bowing and scraping before dictators. What is Team Obama doing establishing formal contacts with these people? A remarkable turnaround in relations between two historic adversaries. The commander-in-chief's leadership is now leading to a major foreign policy breakthrough. Another stunning 
Donald Trump breakthrough. President Trump scoring a big win. It's time to celebrate a great victory when it happens. President Trump proves the experts wrong again and scores a stunning diplomatic triumph. How about this? The fact that all he wants is to get them back to the table as a precondition, sure. not I'll give up. If you give up your nuclear weapons, then we'll talk. Why would the administration think that this is a group they could do business with? Uh, you know, I have no idea. Those who hate us will always hate us. And the hatred for America is never going to go away. It is a definite win for the president. And it's a huge win for this country. It's breathtaking. It's audacious. It's bold. Uh, it will be historic. I'm juiced about it. It'll be magnificent for the people of Korea. Be magnificent for the table. world. Obama would personally negotiate with leaders of terrorist nations like Iran and North Korea without preconditions. Wow. The world will probably be a little bit safer. The media should be giving President Trump credit for that. I'm not sure there's any real discussing issues with Kim Jong-un. He may be the one president who would actually do this, who would go meet with North Korean leader. Look, it's a bad idea for the president to speak to Kim Jong-un. Why wait till the end of May? Let's do this by the end of March. The current president truly believes that he's the chosen one, cannot deal with criticism. We are really in danger of living in a sort of pretty little dream world where Barack Obama thinks the power of his personality is going to have this incredible transformative impact on these crazy Kate, men Kate, let me all interrupt. over President Trump made the decision himself to meet face-to-face -face with Kim Jong-un. This guy has a very unique quality of leadership. He is so charming. He can deal with people. He can get along with people. I think that this will only work out well. The idea, which has been fanciful from the start, that we could talk North Korea out of its nuclear weapons program. You cannot make such a promise, not when you're dealing with these madmen who do want to destroy America. Is he going to stop on his way in Oslo to get the Nobel Peace Prize? If it works, he should get the Nobel Peace Prize. It would be something. You give that man the Nobel Prize, there's no question. But let's be, I mean, the chances of that are right around zero, I think. Will always be fair and balanced, would not the left wing destroy Trump media. So, I mean, at this point, that tells you everything you need to know about Fox News. How hypocritical and hacky do you have to be? No matter what Trump does, it's good. No matter what Obama did, that was bad. It's all about teams. They care about their team. Um, and if Trump does it, you know, even if it goes against their warmongering neoconservative instincts, they're going to praise him for it. Now, to be fair, I see a lot of liberals who praised Obama for reaching a deal with Iran and trying to restore diplomatic ties with Cuba, now criticizing Donald Trump for doing what Obama basically did. So, I mean, everyone is just so hyper-focused on team politics that they don't even realize how ridiculous they look and sound. And if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I sounded off about this because I just saw so much hacks on Twitter when uh, the summit was happening I saw the hashtag and I decided to click on it and that was a bad mistake because I saw liberals criticizing Trump and conservatives praising Trump. And then when you look at the GOP's official Twitter, um, they talk about how courageous Donald Trump is for stopping war when this has been the party of death and destruction and pro-war since forever. So everyone is showing just how big of a hack they are. Here's the thing. If you stick to your principles and have an underlying core political philosophy then that means sometimes you're going to cross party lines and you're going to praise someone who you typically disagree with but everyone who is a liberal 
They have to be anti-Trump no matter what. Anyone who's a conservative has to be pro-Trump no matter what. So they end up looking like complete fools when someone on their team does something that they once said they disagreed with. I mean, <laughs> if you if you play team politics and you only care about your team winning or losing, then you're not you're not concerned with policy. And policy is everything. Politics itself is just a means to an end. It's part of the policy process. But what we should care about as reasonable people are policy outcomes. But everybody is just so concerned about their team. It's really, really embarrassing. Just, just be honest. Just stick to your principles no matter what. And if that means you have to agree with Donald Trump once in a while, liberals, then at least you were consistent. And conservatives, I mean, they're really they're the biggest offenders here. They're the biggest hypocrites. Republicans have been consistently hawkish and pro-war, and all of a sudden, anyone who disagrees with Donald Trump is against peace? Well, sure, I mean, maybe they're being disingenuous, but you've always done everything in your power to saber-rattle against Iran, against Iraq, against North Korea. So everyone's a hypocrite in this situation, and it's just... It's mind-boggling that they can't see how foolish they look. Well, that's all I got for you guys. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the program, thank you so much, especially for listening to me rant for that long. If you'd like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. I will see you all next week. Take care.